At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is foliar feeding month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields relating to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some of the most important issues of our time. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today's bonus podcast is a rebroadcast of our monthly seed class where our seed expert Bill McDormand shares some seed wisdom and discusses news and concerns that might occupy the thoughts of those of us that are saving seeds. Welcome, welcome everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the Urban Farm. Tonight we are here for our monthly seed chat with Bill McDormand. Welcome, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well, Greg. Thank you. It's an honor to be here as usual. Well, fantastic. I love having you. I, we all, I always learn some great seed stuff as we're going along this evening. So why don't you tell people what you've been up to? Well, this is the season of conferences for sure. And a lot of education events. Mainly, you know, at least overall myth is that farmers, you know, and people that are actually growing things are too busy in the summer. You know, they're getting ready for things in the spring. They're busy in the summer and they're harvesting in the fall. So this is really the only time they can come together. So there's really this inordinate amount of (laughs) conferences. And well, I went to our grain school that we hold at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, Right. Every year. I was at the New Mexico Organic Farmers Conference in Albuquerque, mm. and I was at the Organic Seed Growers Conference, which happens every other year at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon, which uh-huh. probably brings together more of the like-minded seed people of the level that I'm used to communing with than any other conference. And so you get a chance to check in, see what's going on, see old friends, chew a little on the latest controversies and get inspired for another year of going back home and going to work, I guess. Well, there you go. So we were chatting a little while ago before we went on the air about this whole notion of seed patenting. Let's dive into that. I know we've chatted about it in the past, but you've got some updates for us. Yes, it is continuing with a vengeance, what most argue. One of my favorite seed catalogs that sells a lot of organic seeds. These are certified organic seeds. A lot of them are open pollinated. What I guess the bottom line, if you don't have time to listen, but if you want one takeaway from the whole thing is that it is really difficult to figure out now if something is even patented. And lots of things are. I did about 80 hours of research and I found out that in my favorite catalog, 40 of the lettuce 
varieties now carry utility patents, which as far as I can tell, there are 40 varieties. Again, it's kind of difficult to figure this out, but that's 40%? That's up from 23% last year. So this wow. trend is continuing. And one has to ask, you know, what's it going to be like if you open up your certified organic seed catalog? You want to save seeds to an easy one, as you and I have often talked about, one of the uh-huh. self-pollinating crops that you can just save the seeds from and use, like lettuce. Right. And you found out that utility patents on them prevent you from saving the seeds. It's the most restrictive form of intellectual property protection on the planet. You're not even supposed to let them go to seed. Mm -hmm. And so that, for me, who's a seed saver, and I'm the director of the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, seed saving, you know, seed conservation organization, this is threatening. (laughs) And I've been trying to you know, raise the alarms a little bit. And I think really to cut to the chase is that every gardener at this point should ask the people they're buying seeds from to supply a complete list of everything in their catalogs that carry utility and what we call PVP or Plant Variety Protection Act patents. Those are still patented varieties, but it's not nearly as restricted. And there's always been a farmer's exemption that allows whomever is buying the seed to actually grow and save their own seeds and use them. You just can't sell the seeds. Ah. Utility patents in the last few years have taken us to a whole new level where you can't even save the seeds. And that, uh-huh. for a seed saver, that's not good. <laughs> right. If anybody out there has questions about things that they found or suggestions or around this issue, I'd love to hear from you tonight. So Perfect. So if I have a seed catalog, which I actually happen to have one here in front of me, it's Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Catalog. Are there patented varieties in here, do you suspect? There could be, but I don't know. And I don't suspect that there are. Yeah. But, however, you know, one of the catalogs that I didn't inspect them, and I'm not going to name names tonight. Okay. I want people to look themselves. And I want people, you know, you should always look and try to find out where your seeds come from. Uh-huh. If there's any suspicions at all, ask. Because I think that's what we need are thousands of customers to ask their seed catalogs to provide a list and to yeah. be really clear about marking them, which is not going on right now. It's sort of slipping in without people knowing about it. I guess that's what is most alarming to me. Uh-huh. So don't take it for granted. Here's what's happening is that since 1985, in a Supreme Court ruling, mm-hmm. our government really allows the patenting of any plant and or traits in those plants, the genes. And lots of times these utility patents are for traits in the lettuce, for instance, and not necessarily for a lettuce variety, although lettuce varieties like new ham, I found out, can be patented. So what that means is that there's actually, if you look through the U.S. Patent and Trade Office and you search through their site and you say search for lettuce and see all the patents on lettuce, they've allowed a patent for a particular color of purple. You know, that's a trait that's found in lots of open pollinated heirloom lettuce varieties, even some probably in Baker Creek. It's a really kind of muddied time to try to figure this out. That's why the companies that sell those seeds need to do the research and make sure that those seeds getting out into the world are properly labeled. Right. As you and I were talking about before, I think that's really important because, you know, we have 500 seed libraries now. Mm -hmm. We have seed exchanges. If you don't know, if you're saving seed from your lettuce and it might be utility patented and you don't know and you take them down and you put them in your seed exchange or you put them in your seed library, you know, that risks the whole seed library. Right. You know, one of the things we argued to make sure that seed libraries are legal is the fact that they're not exchanging illegal material. 
it gets really interesting and difficult at that level. So I'm trying to head things off at the pass yeah. by asking, you know, make no mistake, I do not support utility patenting. I don't know anybody who does who is involved in the seed industry on the level I'm on. Mm -hmm. um, plant breeders at universities don't like it because it restricts material lots of times in a corporate setting so that they as university researchers can't even do research on good traits or good varieties anymore. There's a pinch happening all over the planet right now as there's a rush to file these utility patents that are now allowed, but I don't see in the end that they're going to be good for local self-reliance, for us to have enough diversity in our agriculture, which is one of the things I've always been a proponent of, you know, as we go forward. So I am personally against utility patents. As far as I can tell, most of the people in the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance are seed savers and don't believe in utility patents. And so I think we should argue that our favorite catalogs and tell them we don't like those varieties. We don't want them in the catalogs, but mm -hmm. we absolutely have to know when they're in there. And that's the first step, I guess. Right. Let's go to the other end. So request of your seed catalogs to put this patented seeds in there. But let's go to the other end. Let's say I grow out a variety of lettuce that I got a packet from one of these seed catalogs and I save the seeds and I take them and put them in a seed bank or do a seed exchange with them. How is that tracked? I have this nondescript lettuce seed that grows really great in my yard because I've grown it out of here for five years. How are we going to know? How does that get solved? It's not going to get solved. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, the, the only real decision is that okay or isn't it? Right. You know, human beings like order. You know, we don't want to waste time. And we gain a certain amount of respect among other gardeners in our neighborhood, in our city, you know, you as at the urban farm there or whatever. So yeah. that if you save seeds from a really great lettuce in your backyard, and it's different enough from everything you've seen, it has some characteristic, you know, it's heat tolerant because it's your backyard mm -hmm. and it's been reseeding itself or like we've talked about your basil that right. keeps reseeding itself in your backyard. And so after a number of years, somebody asks you for it and you go, well, that's Greg's basil, you know, mm -hmm. here it is. And it starts being called Greg's basil and a new name, a new variety in a sense is born. That simple process is how we got the names to everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there yeah. are no seed name police. Nobody's ever coming to check. I mean, your neighbors might call you on it when they say, well, you know, I've been letting mine go too. And I've got the same thing. And yours isn't any different from mine. So maybe together you start calling it, you know, Phoenix Backyard Basil. Yeah. I mean, that's another regional moniker. And we see lots of heirlooms with that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, who is Waltham? You know, Waltham oh, right. Butternut Squash. We start getting into names after experiment stations or individuals or seed companies sometimes. And so mm -hmm. the whole name thing is really mysterious. I think in this day and age, what I would like to see is actually we've gotten to a point where we've lost so much diversity and things have gotten so pigeonholed and proper that there's no passion left. There's no mm -hmm. excitement left in creating new things. Mm -hmm. And if there's passion and excitement around your basil because you named it, after all, now it's Gre Gregor's basil, you know, you're going to save the seeds and you're going to make sure that your friends keep getting them. And you may hand out some seeds for a while and then people come back a few years later and go, oh my God, that was my favorite basil. Do you have any more? Yeah. And of course you do. And so you keep handing it out. And that's how we get to be seed stewards. And so I'm all in favor of new names. If and when, they'll help you save the seeds. They'll help that new diversity that's adapted to your particular conditions or cultural needs can get around more. You know, let's name more things. 
I'm on the left wing of the naming oh, spectrum there. Yeah, I, there you go. I just think we need more of that. That's what we're missing in our society right now. And at some point, you know, we're going to make a big mess. But I figure that's what universities are paid to do, right? <laughs> University <laughs> systems yeah. are paid to sift through 17 varieties of wheat or basil or whatever. They grow them all out and they go, you know what? All these are exactly the same. Or they do the genetic testing on them. And they'll bring them all back together into one variety that will be then more uniform, grown out on a larger scale, and be used in industrial settings. That's what they do. They've always done that, and we need that, and that's a nice part of the system. But what they don't have are those 17 new varieties that are adapted to Arizona to do that with the way they used to a couple of generations ago. So I'm trying to wake us back up and build that diversity foundation again and get us all saving seeds and having fun. Amen to that. So I've got a couple of questions here, but then I want to circle back around on something else here in a minute. But let's go with the questions first. Nan from Taos, New Mexico says, Hi, Bill and Greg. The Johnny's Seed Catalog says in their descriptions if there are patents on the seeds. It's very clear. I haven't noticed that in many other catalogs. Thoughts on that? Johnny's has some really great information about the difference between utility patents and plant variety protection. Uh But there are errors in that catalog. There are varieties they sell that are not marked that I found. And so I'll just leave it at that and invite you to do your own deeper investigation. Yeah. So Kat from Fergus, Ontario. This is a very interesting question. Thanks for sending it over, Kat. I was chatting with a botany professor about seeds. He says seeds cannot be regionally adapted. This is contrary to what I thought about the importance of producing seeds locally. Well, I'd like to see what his evidence is. I mean, I've heard this argument before, but it's almost like syntax error. In other words, what he's saying is that if you take a seed and you take it over to a new region, you can't change that seed. Uh-huh. You can't change, you know, that variety alone. It will not change. What changes are populations that are grown from those seeds uh-huh. over a period of time. The genetics will drift and change. It's a matter of selection. In other words, if you take einkorn, which is an ancient wheat, down to the desert and grow it for quite a while, the ones that survive and make it will have a slightly different genetic makeup than the einkorn that you take to Canada up into an area that's cloudy and has more moisture. There, probably fungal diseases will get some of it. You know, all the ones that don't have a resistance to that fungus will die, as an example. Whereas in the desert, that'll never be a problem. So those things are always going to be there. That's what we talk about when we talk about regional adaptation. So I have a question for this fellow. You know, modern wheat has been around probably for four to 6,000 years, what we call modern wheats. Uh It's a 42 chromosome wheat. And there were estimated in the early 1900s to be 30,000 varieties of wheat on the planet. All came out of the same genetic pool. It may have all come from one plant as far as we know. It was what we call an emmer wheat or a 28 chromosome wheat crossed with some wild grass somewhere along the way, created this catastrophic sexual transformation. We have now we have wheat with 42 chromosomes. And then for 6,000 years, that's been taken all over the planet to what, you know, named, recognized, completely different and distinct 30,000 different varieties. If you can't take seeds to a new place and adapt them to a new region, how did that happen? (laughs) That is underlying what we're talking about. And so my guess is that he's talking in a strict botanical sense and I'm talking in a general historic, let's feed people sense. And so it may be that we're on the same page. And when botanists take stands like this, I try to 
you know, engage with them and learn from them. Nail them down. Listen to exactly what they're trying to say because in those conversations, I always learn something that helps me with the way I look at these sorts of things. So good question, though. You know, this is ultimately how we learn, by being curious. Yeah. I'm a lifelong learner. That's why I do Urban Farm U and Seed School Online, yeah. and I'm curious. It's like, what more is there to learn from me? Right. Thanks for that, Kat. The question I want to circle around back to you is, might be a little bit on the revolutionary end, but if I buy a packet of patented seeds, and I go plant them, and I grow them out, and I save the seeds, and I grow them out again, how is anybody going to know if they're patented, if I'm sharing them? <laughs> well, they're probably not. I mean, this is if you spend any time at all with Vandana and Shiva in India, uh -huh. where, you know, India has half the world's farmers. Do you realize that? 55 million farmers live in India. Wow. And by and large, that's what she's urging them to do. Mm -hmm. And they have had some success in getting patents dropped, actually, when thousands of grassroots farmers just grow and save their own seeds from something that's patented. Because yeah. frankly, no one has a centralized you know, enforcement bureau for grassroots growing and saving your own seeds. What those patents are for, and this is what the good people that are selling them say, is that they're to keep other companies from patenting it. You know, we're only no. doing it because if we don't, another big company now, you know, we're down to a half a dozen big companies in many right. of the markets that we're talking about. So it is a real dog-eat-dog -dog kind of world out there, and uh -huh. they're all doing it, so we have to do it. As I mentioned at the Organic Seed Alliance conference, that argument reminds me of ones they used for slavery, right? I could give up all my slaves but then somebody else would own them, you know? Everybody right. owns slaves. But I want to end slavery, right? I want to end utility patenting completely. So that argument, does, that particular argument doesn't work with me. And that's where this sort of grassroots level of seed saving gets its force. You know, as we well, were talking I, earlier, what I worry about are institutions that we're creating, mm -hmm. especially in the United States, like seed libraries that could be threatened. Once again, Once how how is anybody going to know? Well, some of these lettuces are really distinct. They mm -hmm. stay small. I mean, if somebody was walking through a community garden from one of these companies, they might recognize one of their lettuces. And if they uh. traced it back, where did you get the seed? It would probably be a practical thing. I mean, they could always do genetic testing on it too because they probably right. have a pretty clear idea of the traits inside that they've patented. There's a description about that. So, you know, in this day and age, I don't see any of that happening here. But we are quickly moving toward a world. We just went from six seed companies owning about 62 to 72% of the world's seeds to three. That is all happening since the Trump administration. So what wow. happens if that goes to one? What happens if we end up with one or two companies owning the majority of the world's seeds? There's a dozen companies. They go, even go down to smaller ones in Europe that have banded together uh -huh. to form what they call the Anti-Enforcement Bureau. <laughs> and what they, it's an AIB. And go to AIB dot com and pull it up it's really kind of scary that they've got an agency that they've created to help enforcing intellectual property rights around plants is including utility patents where those apply again those are only given in the united states of america nobody else in the world has anything as restrictive in the patent sphere as we do in the united states almost every other country and in fact there's a movement worldwide with the convention on biodiversity and the nagoya protocol mm -hmm. to allow for breeders exemptions to allow for farmers and peasant farmer exemption i was going to say that these are all u.s patents yeah and population wise we have call it 330 million people in the united states so it really only applies to 330 million people out of 7 billion people so right 
the rest of the world, you know, bring it on, step it up, bust this thing up, because it sounds to me like it needs to be busted up. I was speaking with Stephen Jones, who runs the Bread Lab at Washington State. We were talking about utility patents, and he said one of the breeders at UC Davis was working on strawberries, and they started patenting some of the traits that he was discovering as a breeder. And he signed a contract with UC Davis to get half of the royalties from the patent, from the sale of the strawberries. So what they do is they pass on that cost, even to retail strawberries. And it might be that a penny from every strawberry that's grown, you know, goes back into this royalty pool and he got half. Well, after a year, he got $2 million. This is just a university professor from one of the patents that he held. And UC Davis got the other half. Well, you know, after six or eight years of $2 million a year, Uh the university's going, whoa, 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 this is too much money, Yeah, you know? And they're suing him to change the contract. So even they're not happy with it. Right. Well, point two, at Oregon State University in Corvallis, they have, that's the National Seed Storage Repository for strawberries. uh Now, you can't, most of the material that's used for breeding strawberries doesn't come from strawberry seeds. It comes from plants. Strawberries are mostly propagated as plants. You know, they have little runners, and you take one of the little plants on the runners, right? So they've got 2,400 strawberry plants in Corvallis and greenhouses, which constitutes one of the largest collections of genetic diversity in strawberries on the planet that's used for commercial production. One of the researchers told me that so much material now in strawberries has been utility patented by three separate companies that he doubts, you know, he was thinking biologically, he doubts that good commercial strawberry production will continue in the future because three companies own a third of the pie. Uh And what we really need now to create new varieties that will overcome the diseases and meet market needs right now is some of the genetics from two or more of those companies. And they're not giving it to each other. They've walled it off, right? We own this part. You can't use it. So that's an example how utility patents in the end start to restrict the natural flow of genes through the system and through breeders to come up with new varieties, Uh even in commercial agriculture. And so that could and can happen to everything. Once they patent all the traits and lettuce, nobody's going to have enough of those traits to create new varieties. That's a fear. That hasn't happened. Oh, my gosh. That's why I'm against utility patents. They just don't have any place. I always then think it's just an insane argument anyway that for 10,000 years, there are pictures of romaine lettuce carved on pyramids that are three, 4,000 years old. Mankind's been working on lettuce for a long time. And for you to come along in the 21st century and say, oh, we own this now, all that work for 10,000 years, you know, because we isolated this trait and we were first to file. We weren't the people that created this first. We were just the first people to file papers, Mm -hmm. and now we own it. I mean, when you apply that to plant life, I think you've gone too far. That stuff needs to be left in the commons as they say at the Open Source Seed Initiative, and I agree. So tell you a little bit about that. What is the commons, just for those people that may not know? What's happening is one of the reactions to this idea of patenting plants has been to figure out how we can keep what we've lovingly called at this point the land race varieties, the old heritage varieties, the ones that have always been there for anybody to take some seeds, grow them, and do whatever they want. I mean, that's, that's the commons. And that's been guaranteed, Uh you know, 
all the way through humanity. It's part and parcel of farming. Up until two generations ago, every farmer and gardener grew and saved some of their own seeds and selected right. for those things that worked best for them, that regionalized them to get back to that other question. And right. so to end that is a shock. So what do you do? Well, the Open Source Seed Initiative was trying to find a way. So they took a page out of the playbook from open source software, right? Oh, right. What open source software says, I worked on this. I created this program. And you can have it for free. However, you are never down the line able to take the software that I wrote and commercialize it. That's just not going to be allowed. It's open. Or if you do, there are different gradations and levels of it. You have to come back to me and talk to me about it because right. I didn't intend for this to be commercialized. So what breeders are doing and some of the better seed catalogs, when they come up with a new variety now, instead of just letting it go and releasing it, they're putting the Aussie pledge on it which means that you can use this for breeding. You can save your own seeds. You can use this for whatever you want. That's just what seeds have always been used for. However, right. because we've attached this pledge to it, you can't patent it down the road. You can't breed something and patent it. It has to stay in the public domain forever. And the idea is that as we get more and more varieties into this pool and more and more important ones, that will open up a space again of varieties that can never be patented and their traits can't be. And so there's about 300 varieties in it now. I mm -hmm. invite everyone to go to the Open Source Seed Initiative website. You can see a list of the breeders and the varieties that they've put in there. As Jack Koplenberg says, and I just saw a presentation of his, basically what these guys are doing is walling off and fencing off parts of plant life on the planet, living plant life. They're saying, oh, we own this part. We own these traits. Right. We own this trait. We own this variety. We own this color. We own heat resistance in broccoli now, for instance, is one of the oh, utility Lord. patents that was just given. Okay? So they're fencing off everything. So because of that, Aussie was required to build a fence. That's what their open source seed initiative is. But inside their fence, there are no fences. This is the only place left where there are no fences, guaranteed. You know, for new varieties. That's what they're really trying to do. Open Source Seed Initiative, O-S-S-I. Yeah, that's osseeds.org. I'm on their website now. Great people. So you know, whether or not this will hold up in court, nobody from Monsanto has ever taken a trait that was in an Aussie variety and tried to patent it. And it'll be really an interesting court case. It will and be. there are those in the movement that say, oh, those guys have more money than we do, so they'll end up winning the case. But I'm not so sure. I don't know. It'll be really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Cool. O-S-S-I, Freed Seed, they call it. They have a whole list of varieties Freed of open seed. source. What they're trying to do is open up an area that has actually been what humanity has had for 10,000 years. It's just sad that we have to fight to get our rights back. Yeah. All these seeds were given to us as gifts. The only reason we have them is somebody cared enough to take care of something, and they left them to everybody. Yeah. And so to take some of those and say, we own it now, it just doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make sense. So we'll have to see how we go forward. Well, I was going to say that it sounds to me like this seed patenting is becoming self-limiting for the seed companies anyways. Well, yeah. They don't see it as that yet, you know, and they probably never will until it's too late. You know? right. yeah. I mean, it's become such a part of that corporate seed culture now. They would have to have such a big seed police out there. It seems to me, uh, I'm just postulating here, but it seems yeah. to me that this is not a generative, not a sustainable model for patenting seeds. It's one that has no legs underneath it. 
Right. But how much destruction will it do before those lakes fall out, you know? Yeah. You know, there's estimates we lost 90% of the diversity in the fields worldwide because of the centralization and the industrialization of agriculture. Yeah, well, that's our job. Yeah, go out and make Greg's basil. Greg's parsley, urban farm parsley. Go out and save seeds and grow them out over time and name them. Like, don't we have Mrs. Burns lemon basil? Yeah, Barney Burns was one of the founders at Native Seed Search. And now basil was brought early in the 20th century to Tucson by his grandmother. You know, that's where Uh it came from. That's what we want. Heirloom treasures. If you name something, if you recreate a treasure out of something in your family or your neighborhood or your region or your yard or your religion or whatever it is, you're going to save it and take care of it. Keep that diversity alive where you are. And that's what we need people to do. That's what we're on. And that shouldn't be threatening to anybody. Right. So I got another question here from Kat. She's from Fergus, Ontario. By the way, Kat, I just sent you an email inviting you to be my guest on the podcast. So please respond positively. I'd love to have you. It looks like what you're up to is fun. Kat says, I grew out some dragon tongue bush beans for seed, but when I planted them, they showed vining tendencies. Is this common? Did they cross with my pole beans? Wow. I know. Well, where right? did the, they come from? Then you have to start asking, you know, going back down the thread. If you grew them for several years in your yard mm-hmm. and there were pole beans growing in your yard at the same time, then yes, they could have crossed. However, not likely. They're largely self-pollinating. Now, there are areas of the country and there's leafcutter bees. There are places where you get more crossing than you do in other areas. And putting another flowering crop, especially with white flowers on it in between two bean crops is usually enough to even take out, you know, more of that possibility. I mean, you know, what I think about is if somebody said, oh my God, I want a dragon bean, but I want it to be a pole bean, you know, instead of a bush bean. Yeah. Pole beans are easier for backyard gardeners because you don't have to bend over, you know. It would be hard to get them to cross, <laughs> you know. Right. That's the more difficult thing is to grow them right next to each other and have them cross. And it would because take a way year the... or two, you know, of growing them out. Because of the way the flowers are formed, right? They're kind of self-imploding. They don't let a whole lot of the pollen out, right? Right. The pollen actually hits. The anther, you know, actually rubs against the stigma and style before the flower gets very open. And again, I'm generalizing. Never say never. Some beans are different than others. Some open faster and wider than others. And so it's always possible that that's what's happened. But if somebody gave you some, you know, dragon tongue beans and they're supposed to be bush beans and you grew them out and they weren't, then that could have happened before. It could be that they're mislabeled. I don't know. These are the kinds of things. This is why we do this, right? It's a treasure hunt. (laughs) Right, exactly. Plus, it's totally possible that being planted where they're at, a a trait in one of the seeds came out and did that, yes? Yeah. It's a single gene trait in beans. It has to do with a terminal bud on the vine, and that can be switched off. So the plant grows out at more bushes. Usually what it means is that the beans all come at the same time. Also, that's oh, right. a corollary yeah, trait. Exactly. So everything ripens at the same time. Whereas if you've got this terminal bud and it just keeps growing longer, it'll keep putting out groups of flowers and it'll actually keep producing beans over a longer period of time. You know, really, bush beans have been selected and really brought into our modern lives for harvesting. It's an industrial trait. Oh, well, there you go. Whole beans are 
far superior for backyard gardeners that handpick things. You can grow, it uses vertical space. You know, as I say, you don't have to bend over and mm-hmm. you get crops for longer periods of time. You know, you'll get your perfectly perfect to eat if they're, you're eating them as green beans. Right. You'll get those happening over and over and over again over a several week period, whereas that's not usually the case with bush beans. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, that that was Kat. She is with Seeds of, this is an acronym, Kat, I-M-B-O-L-C. That's Seeds of I-M-B-O-L-C dot C-A. She says, at Seeds of Imbolic, I offer only organically grown, non-GMO, non-hybrid varieties that are grown right here in Wellington County, Ontario. Welcome to the conversation tonight, Kat. Thanks for being here and just did a shout out. Wow. I was just speaking with Don Tipping from Siskiyou Seeds, which is a great small seed company in uh-huh. Southern Oregon. And he was helping organize at the Organic Seed Alliance Conference. And this year they had 21 small bioregional seed companies, Greg. They're participating nice. in sort of some round tabling and some organizing so that they can all help each other. Yeah. But 21, that's incredible. You know, this is where our seats are going to come from. And those people yeah. are usually way more upfront and honest about exactly where their seats come from because they know it's easier for them to know. Right. We're coming up to wrap up the hour here pretty soon. And I have something for you to postulate. I want you to look out over the next year and give me some ideas of what we're doing seed wise. What are your thoughts that you might see coming? you know, around seeds, conferences, what's going on seed-wise? So you're looking for trends? Whatever comes up for you. Okay, well, a couple of things are happening. There is data available, if anybody's looking for it, from the National Gardening Association. Every year they do a garden survey, Uh the National Garden Survey, and it's a demographic study, really detailed one. They used to get Gallup. They've got a different agency that actually does it now. But last year, there was an anomaly that we'd never seen, at least in my, you know, 30 years or more of looking at this thing. You know, there are 150 million gardeners in America. It's the number one outdoor hobby. Bird watching is right there with it. So, you know, bird Bird watching and gardening are the two number one outdoor hobbies in America, right? The largest demographic of people that do vegetable gardening are 55 and older with a college education. Uh huh. So if you want to target your efforts, that's what most people have done. However, for the first time, we had 6 million new vegetable gardeners mm-hmm. last year in yep. the millennial age group. We're seeing young people come back to this. And I know that the Young Farmers Coalition is experiencing this too. Farming is starting to see more new young people than ever again. Uh-huh. So I think that's, we're going to see a new youthful expression in this yeah. whole movement, and especially around seeds. And I think that's where the 21 seed companies that Don was talking about, I met in the last couple of weeks. I've seen, and actually I passed on post for Grand Prismatic Seeds. Have you heard of that? It's a no. small little company in southern Utah in the Red Rock country. These two mm-hmm. beautiful young men have started. I just met the young woman who started San Diego Seeds. She's doing it on an acre just north of San Diego, California. Both of these groups are in it for the right reasons and right. for the long haul. You know, they want a planet they can live on that, yeah. that grows food that's not destructive to the planet, that doesn't make them sick. Mm-hmm. And it, right now we've got a great local food movement. Well, I think the trend we're going to see is more and more local seeds for yeah. those local foods. And that's where these young companies are coming from. So that's big. I think we're going to see more and more of that. I saw more excitement and more dedication and more young people around this than I've ever seen in the last two conferences I just went to. So that's one thing I see. Another trend, grains. We're going to see more and more gardeners oh, yes. growing greens. We're realizing that you can just, you know, a 20-foot row of oats. I expect this year I'm going to get enough oats for my oatmeal needs for the year. Wow. You know, I can grow 
a holeness variety. I can bang them into a trash can to get them out of their holes. I can winnow them in front of my box fan a little bit. And now I have my own little oat roller I bought. Uh-huh. So I can roll them fresh just before I eat them. Unbelievably wow. good. The fresh flower movement, they call it, is here. Don't break that grain until just before you eat it. Right. Get your own little mill. Get mm-hmm. your own roller and start growing at least some of these things if you're a gardener. I met Ralph Bush again this year at our grain school. He teaches metallurgy and engineering at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. He's a professor there. Uh-huh. And he grows all his own grains in his backyard garden. He knows how many pies he's going to make, how many cookies, how many loaves of bread he needs. And he, over the years, in his little garden beds, he's figured out how to grow the grains he needs and thresh them and clean them himself. And I love that idea. That, I think, is another trend that we're going to start seeing. Mm -hmm. You don't need a 33-foot wide combine to have fresh grain in your own neighborhood, in your own backyard. So that's another great trend I see. Wow. How cool is that? Really, our vegetable gardens are the fluff of our diet. Fluff, I don't know if that's exactly the right word. It's not the basis of our, you know, our American diet. You know, the basis in many cases is grains. And so we need to figure out how we can do this with grains. Hence grain school, right? Yeah. Right. Grain schools, yes. You know, that's what the, uh, Evan Sofro, when he was the farm manager at Native Seeds, came to me one time and he said, yeah, Bill, all these vegetables, you know, they're the icing, you know? Mm, icing, it's yeah. great. We've got them all now. Yeah. He said, we need the cake. <laughs> Which is really more than 70% of all our calories, Mm -hmm. you know? And what we're learning is if we go back into those older grains, they don't hurt as much. And by hurt, I mean there's gluten insensitivities, there's gut Mm -hmm. problems, there's leaky gut. We've got this whole plethora of new gut problems. Well, walk into the store and see how big the gluten-free section is now. Oh, yeah. If that's not a problem. Some of those older grains are not nearly as allergenic is what they're starting to call it now. And there's lots of new data about that. We haven't found the smoking gun and there's nothing that works perfectly yet, but boy, I love it. And all I can say is my lovely, lovely wife, Belle, can eat my bread again because (laughs) I am making it out of einkorn, one of the oldest grains. And so that for me, you know, I'm having all this fun, fresh grinding my flour. I'm making all these sourdough breads. I'm learning how to do it. And my wife can't eat it because she's gluten intolerant. Yeah. I mean, that just didn't make sense. And uh-huh. after healing yeah. herself up for a year, but she's back to eating my einkorn bread. And I'm so happy about that. Nice, 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 nice. So I want to do a shout out for Seed School Online. That's our seven week online course that Bill and Bell and I helped create it, but they did a majority of the work and you can find that at seedschoolonline.com. Can you say like two minutes worth, maybe a minute's worth on that, Bill? Let me give you an update, Greg. I was just at conferences. Uh I had probably six people walk up to me at the conference and Uh thank me from the bottom of their heart for Seed School Online. One woman, I handed me her card. I've got it right here. It's called Seeds for Sharing Library. It's a seed library in Oak Grove, Oregon. Mm -hmm. She said, I took Seed School Online. At the end of the course, Bill, you challenge us all to do something. That the knowledge that you learn in Seed School Online is not going to be worth anything unless you do something. She started a seed library that has changed her community. She said, thank you. And I love that. You know, you never know what's going to happen with these things, but it's working. And then I had another brilliant young man. He's a breeder, Casey, who's in Carbondale, Colorado, come up to me and he is doing some of the most breathtakingly beautiful work around heat tolerance in greenhouses and varieties, tomatoes and cold tolerance. 
also. But anyway, halfway through his conversation, he looked up at me and goes, oh, by the way, I did Seed School Online. It was great. Nice. It helped me tremendously. And then he went back to telling me I was more interested in what he was doing. Right. <laughs> you know, but those are affirmations that what we've done, Greg, is working. Yeah. It's out yeah. there. It, this is a valuable program. I really believe it now after getting this kind of feedback. That's what I'll say tonight about it. <laughs> That's SeedSchoolOnline.com. I got one quick update from Kat. Thanks for being such a great voice in our chat this evening, Kat. She said, Imbolic, I-M-B-O-L-C, is an ancient celebration of seed. And when I looked it up on Google or in Wikipedia, it says, Imbolic is festivity. It's a festival also called Bridget's Day in a is Gaelic tradition festival marking the beginning of spring and seeds. So there you have it. Wow. Yeah, I know. Right. Cool, and right? now we've got embolic.com. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. Seeds of embolic. This is true. That's Kat's site. So, well, thank you very much for wow. joining us on the show this evening, Bill. I greatly love doing these once a month. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, me too. And I think it's important to keep the conversation going. This thing is in real time now, folks. There are thousands of new people coming on board and learning. And we could together come on, ask your questions, tell your friends. We can make this a space to really exchange some great information you yeah. know and learn things like about cat what a great thing i'm so glad i know about her yeah big time all right very good well thank you all for joining us this evening thank you for spending some time away from your maybe family to listen in and if you're listening on the podcast yay we do this once a month we do a live version of this once a month and then we convert it over into our podcast so thank you thank you and as i always like to say farm out and catch you on the flip side Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you'll receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.